On the Way Home is proudly supported by Ellis Dong Community Builders, a group formed within the Ellis Dong group of companies to assist those who wish to deliver affordable and sustainable housing by providing development management services and leveraging Ellis Dong's turnkey cradle-to-grave project capabilities. We incorporate all that a world-leading development, construction, and building services company has to offer to provide innovative and sustainable developments that connect and energize communities. Our offering is not simply a development and construction solution. It's a holistic and comprehensive approach that ensures the delivery of assets that communities can be proud of. To learn more, please visit www.communitybuilders.ellisdon.com. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. I am one of your hosts, Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door. And back on the team is the amazing <laughs> Stefania, fresh from the conference that she just finished, a, a huge online conference. Steph, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. I always feel so good during a conference and right after the relief is so nice, especially because it seemed to go so well. So yeah, it feels really, really good. How are you doing? Listen, hey, let's not get off that. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I, I actually just got to attend and, and watch. But as always, great keto speakers, great mm-hmm. topics. Uh, well done. And I know it's a very difficult uh, process. So congratulations. I'm sure you're tired. I know all my team at Blue Door that attended really, really enjoyed it. And they were they were actually presenting some stuff, too. So and they said you made that easy as well. So congratulations on a great conference. Well, thank you. Yeah, I did. I will say it's the first time I put on concealer to hide the like black <laughs> abyss under my eyes. But so I look so fresh, I think. But <laughs> Absolutely. yeah, it was it, honestly like it was it was such a lovely conference. The two keynotes, we usually have like four or five keynotes um, and two and a half days. So we jam packed it into four hours, two days, two keynotes. And I just feel like it was still really high quality and everyone walked away feeling really good about it and um, yeah and that's what you want right when you can't be together at least uh, virtually it kind of went off without a hitch which was really lovely absolutely and everyone got back home in record time after the (laughs) you know there there are advantages to doing it virtually and our pal uh, Andrew Bazzari Dr. Mm -hmm. Bazzari was a keynote so good to see him again yeah, absolutely. And just lovely like to hear him um, talk about, you know, healthcare and the issues uh, around homelessness. And I don't have a good uh, segue to introduce our guest today, but would well, you like to see and, and hear from and yeah, know I who is joining us today? We're talking about fresh. We're talking about greatness. Mm-hmm. We're talking about people doing great work. I think that's a segue into um, our, uh, our guest today. Would you like to hear more about them? 
Yeah, I would love to tell you all about them. Yeah, um, please do. So <laughs> first on the docket, we have Michelle Biss. Uh, she is the project manager of the National Right to Housing Network, a group of over 350 individuals and organizations who are dedicated to the meaningful implementation of the right to housing in Canada. As an expert in economic and social rights, she has presented at several United Nations treaty body reviews and at Canadian parliamentary committees. She is a human rights lawyer and was called to the Ontario Bar in 2014. We also have uh, the lovely Sahar Raza. She is the Communications and Research Coordinator for the National Right to Housing Network. As a daughter of immigrants and activists, she has been she has been working to elevate marginalized voices and narratives for as long as she can remember. Before joining the NRHN, she spent over seven years in academia, researching, teaching, and creatively disseminating knowledge about intersectional Canadian issues rooted in colonialism, systemic discrimination, and privatization, and now bring that, brings that lens to her work at the NRHN. So just a couple of really brilliant uh, women joining us today. Welcome to the Absolutely show. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Well, so welcome to the show, uh, both of you. We have uh, started a new process where we ask one big question to all guests that uh, come on the show. So we'll start with uh, Michelle and then go to Sahar. So we want to know, what does home mean to you? Well, you know, um, and thank you so much, Michael and Stefania, for having Sahar and I on the show today. We are so excited to talk about the right to housing um, to you folks this afternoon. Um, I find this question really hard to answer. Um, and I'll tell you, to be honest, I went through a whole bunch of ideas. I thought about the words that really stick with me here, like dignity, like safety, like growth. Um, but, you know, the word that I think betrays me as a passionate advocate, <laughs> perhaps very deeply indoctrinated in the right to housing world. When I think about the word home, I think about the word justice because I feel anger sometimes, you know, as, as a lawyer, as a legal advocate, I feel such frustration that there are so many in this country who cannot access a home. And I find sometimes it's difficult, um, you know, when, when I think about home and try to think about, you know, the more warm and fuzzy answers to this question to separate that from the fact that so many in this country are experiencing this housing crisis. Um, so I think about justice, although, you know, that's my very, that's, that's really revealing, I think, the, um, the advocate in me there. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, and for me, I'm going to go more the warm, fuzzy route here because Michelle hit the justice nail on the head. Um, I think this is such an excellent question, actually, because it, it gets to the heart of what a rights-based approach to housing is, which is that you know, home is contextual. There's There are some things, the basic structural material things that we all need, like clean access to water, um, you know, a warm, comfortable bed at night, a space for your family and so on. But, but then there are so many things that are kind of variable and intangible that, and they really come down to relationships and feelings. So for me, you know, home is a place where I feel secure, where I feel safe and I can unwind and reflect on the day. But um, that to me uh, may look different than what it looks like to you because I come from a very community oriented South Asian family where it was never just my nuclear family in my home. So we had my cousins living with us, my aunts and uncles, sometimes some random people that I didn't really, you know, want to be there. But it's, you know, it just became part of what I think about as home and uh, actually in the CAH conference yesterday, uh, there was a session on decolonizing the concept of home and it talked about how 
we tend to think of home as this like static structure, but um, you know, for nomadic peoples, it's it's actually about this feeling of being connected to the land and being connected to your community. And so, yeah, that can look different for everybody. And so I guess that's why I, I do the work that I do and why I go to a rights-based approach to housing because it's all rooted in um, starting with people and engaging with people and finding out what they need uh, from their housing and what adequate housing looks like and really centering their dignity issues and centering their justice. And so, uh, you know, that's why the right to housing is such a beautiful approach. Um, yeah. And I think that's such a great, uh, I mean, to, these are some of my favorite answers to this question so far. Um, so, so that was really lovely. And I think a great segue into uh, my first question for the, for the both of you. And that is, you know, can, can we sort of unpack a little bit what exactly is the right to housing? Yes, I will take this one. It's an easier one. So, um, yeah, the right to housing or the right to adequate housing, it's something that's actually recognized in international law. It's a basic and fundamental human right, and it comes from the fact that all people should have an equal right to security, peace, and dignity. And, and housing has been identified as a really core component of that. So it's, uh, there's an international covenant on economic, social, cultural rights. And that covenant explicitly states that housing is a basic human right. So um, I think that's really essential. And it's, it's, as I mentioned, it's more than just shelter. And it's certainly more than property. That's something that I really want to emphasize, because I think a human rights-based approach actually pushes back on that neoliberal concept of like you know commodifying housing privatizing it deregulating the housing market it's, that's all referred to as financialization of housing um, but a rights-based approach is actually it's going beyond ownership and property and it's I mean, we don't have to buy or own something to have the right to vote, for example. So why do we need to buy or own something to have the right to a basic uh, thing like housing, right? So there's this beautiful quote by Sarah Hamel that I really like, which says, whether it's privately owned, privately rented, or public housing, the ideal form of housing is adequate housing. And again, that goes back to really engaging with people who, who need housing and, and finding out what that looks like for them uh, to live a dignified life and so on. <clears throat> but there are also a lot, uh, a lot of guidelines. I don't want to make it sound so airy fairy, you know. Like there are over 50 years of international guidelines that also tell us what this looks like. So, for example, there are seven essential features to adequate housing. Um, the first one being security of tenure, so like not being evicted at, at a whim, um, having availability of services and materials. Of course, things being affordable, the home being habitable, so like no mold or you know things that would compromise your health and safety, um, things being accessible, so that's a huge issue in Canada. A lot of housing is not accessible for persons with disabilities, and we really need to embrace that universal design. Then there's location, so we want to be close to schools or services that we need and um, you know the facilities and so on and then there's cultural adequacy so as I mentioned coming from a giant community oriented family like for me uh, that might look like having an extra unit for my in-laws or my parents because we don't live apart from our family you know we're um, it's kind of a different conception from a single home single family home so to speak so there's all of that. And then there's also this really important piece of housing justice and accountability in a rights-based approach to housing. And so 
that involves, like, for example, if tenants are facing a major rent eviction and they have nowhere to go, how do they secure that right to housing and <clears throat> how do they access justice, right? We need systems where they can um, bring forward claims and bring forward systemic issues and actually make governments accountable to the people and in, in a way that also enhances democracy. So um, yeah, right to housing is a lot of things. <laughs> And Michelle, do you want to add anything? Sure. Um, well, I can I can tie it maybe to the Canadian context if that's um, if that's useful for thinking through this because I think sometimes when um, when you know our colleagues talk about the right to housing, it can seem really out there, right? Like this concept, this idea that folks are rallying behind. Um, but you know, in reality, as Sahar mentioned, we have over 50 years of international jurisprudence, of authorities, of recommendations, really figuring out what the right to housing means. And um, for this kind of discussion, sometimes I think it's helpful to back up a little bit and to think about where did where did human rights come from? Well, human rights came after the Second World War, really at a time when the world was trying to decide what it wanted to be and what kind of a world it wanted to create. And around that time, you see this introduction of, you know, two different concepts, right? Economic, social, and cultural rights and the right to housing. And in fact, since that time, Canada has signed on to a whole number of treaties that require us to do certain things in relationship to civil and political rights and economic, social, and cultural rights. But for some reason, somewhere along the way, we seem to have prioritized civil and political rights in Canada, things like the right to vote, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, and then we've totally deprioritized economic, social, and cultural rights, like the right to food, the right to health, and the right to housing. And what's weird about that is that there's kind of an inherent discrimination, I think, that's within that way we've stratified these two sets of rights, right? Because fundamentally, the right to housing is one that is most important for people who are marginalized. Um, and I think this is in, in no way more clear than when we look at some of the ways that people have tried to access the right to housing in the past. Um, so folks who um, might remember um, about 10 years or so ago, there was a really interesting case called the Tanu Jaja case or the right to housing case. Um, and it's a really good example of why our justice system has not been able to adequately address the right to housing. Um, in that case, you had um, a number of folks who had experienced the, right, the housing crisis in Canada come forward with an institutional applicant from a very cool organization called the Center for Equality Rights and Accommodation. And they filed a claim saying that the government of Canada and the Ontario government had failed in their obligations under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms um, in relationship to Section 7, which is life, liberty, security of the person, and Section 15, which is equality rights. And so with this, um, there was about 9,000 pages of evidence filed. Tons of folks across the housing and homelessness sector came together, rights claimants came together, and we saw this really, really strong attempt at litigation. And it's the kind of litigation that you actually see in countries across the world all the time who are parties to covenants like the Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. But here's what happened, and here's what's... Um, 
a real bummer, to say the least, about this case. Before it was heard, before the judge even considered it, we saw uh, the Attorneys General of Ontario and, and Canada file what's called a motion to strike. And that made a claim that the, the case was frivolous and vexatious and wouldn't even be heard in the courts. And unfortunately, in the Court of Appeal of Ontario, um, in a two to one decision, they agreed that the claim would not be heard and it never got heard in front of the courts. And I tell this story because it's important to know the ways in which the right to housing in, um, in, in using the courts and exercising, the right to housing has been met with this like systemic pushback in Canada. And it is a way in which Canada has been a real outlier from similar countries across the world. We have been an outlier in the way we recognize the right to housing. Now, um, typically the story was a real bummer, I think, and up until about 2019, because some big stuff happened back in 2018 and 2019. And so back in 2018, um, to make the right to housing real in the Canadian context, uh, we saw a whole group of folks from civil society come together. And there was this really fascinating open letter campaign um, where civil society advocates, rights claimants came together and actually drafted up model legislation that said, this is what it would look like to really commit to the right to housing. Um, and this followed um, some early commitments in about 2016 and then with 2017, the national housing strategy to a rights-based approach, the right to housing. So in 2018, you saw civil society saying, this is what that looks like in practice. Um, and then lo and behold, after lots of um, very smart, smart advocacy by a number of, um, of advocates and rights claimants, we actually saw the introduction of, um, of what is now the National Housing Strategy Act. And um, I'm sure we'll talk about it a fair bit because much of Sahar and my work um, and the National Right to Housing Network, our amazing colleagues and partners are super dedicated to now making the, the right to housing live through the National Housing Strategy Act and the um, fascinating claiming mechanisms we've established therein to really make this real in the Canadian context. Well, I love what you're saying there, uh, making it real, making it live, because um, I think that's probably one of the biggest questions that people say, all right, it's great to have this right to housing. How do we actionize that? I don't even know if that's a word, but how do we bring it to, to life? Right. So how can we connect the right to housing and, or, or how can we apply it, a rights based approach to uh, housing programs and policies? Yeah, well, um, actually, we just released a paper, and so did uh, our colleagues at the Women's National Housing Homelessness Network, as well as our colleague Bruce Porter. We had a series of three papers exactly on this topic, um, especially ours was really about um, the National Housing Strategy, which is where most of our housing and homelessness programs come from in Canada, uh, and how we can kind of revamp that strategy to be in line with the right to housing and the, the National Housing Strategy Act, which kind of enforces the right to housing in legislation in Canada. And some of the key examples from our paper that I think uh, would be relevant would for example, uh, be that the rental construction financing initiative, for example, in the National Housing Strategy, um, only it has very lenient affordability guidelines, so it, I think it only requires 20% of units to be priced at 
30% of median, in, uh, median income, I believe, and only for 10 years. And so essentially the government is giving money to developers to create housing that actually does not meet core housing need and won't really solve the affordability crisis. So that, that kind of thing really needs to be revamped and we really need to be centering low-income individuals with these programs. Uh, likewise, uh, we need to shift away from home ownership and purchasing. Uh, you know, we live in a different world now where we really need to be addressing core housing need and homelessness through other means other than ownership. Um, so that's a big thing that the NHS could uh, focus on. And then uh, part of a rights-based approach is also prioritizing folks who are most in need and most vulnerable to uh, homelessness. And uh, the CMHC priority groups currently for the, N the National Housing Strategy actually leave out a lot of key groups. So for example, people with precarious immigration status are not considered a priority group. Low-income women and lone caregivers are not part of that list. Uh, people who have interacted with the criminal justice system are not part of that list and uh, often fall into homelessness when they're transitioning out of those institutions, right? Uh, rural and remote communities are not priorities. Uh, people with disabilities who require services, uh, both housing and accompanying support services to live independently in their community of choice, that is not a priority. So. These are all huge gaps that have really come out, um, especially as we do systemic engagements with uh, people across Canada. And these are things that really need to be addressed in this next uh, iteration of the National Housing Strategy. Michelle, did you want to add anything? I think um, I think you've got so much of it, and maybe I'll just add uh, Sahar to your point. You know, um, on the point of financialization, and that's a discussion I think we saw so much of in this last federal election. Um, this focus on what are we going to do about the fact that we are losing so much affordable housing stock to the private market? Um, what happens when we have policies that are really just exacerbating the amount of stock that is being gobbled up by real estate investment trusts? Um, what are we going to be doing about rent evictions, for example? Um, and it's important to note that, you know, if we're taking a genuine rights-based approach to Canada's national housing strategy, as Sahar was, lining, uh, was laying out there, uh, which, uh, which is what we're supposed to do in the national, under the National Housing Strategy Act, um, the reality is, is that there have to be measures for financialization. And those could be taxation measures. Those could be um, regulation measures. It could be ways to perhaps invest in non-market housing. Um, and maybe it is in some cases a way to focus on um, on home ownership for you know for example in rural areas where people might might only be able to escape core housing need through home ownership um, where you know where there are so few rental housing units available but just just to say you know so much of this work um, is going to be watching ways that we can make sure that the national housing strategy is consistent with the right to housing and that's really what some of the research that um, Sahar and and I and our colleagues Bruce uh, Bruce Porter and Caitlin Schwan have been working on. Well said. You know, I, I think uh, one of our guests recently. I was reading one of his, his tweets, and he said um, that uh, homelessness isn't a choice; it's a policy failure. Um, 
it's a, it's a bunch of them. So, so we, we absolutely get um, that uh, policies really need to change. But what are, what are some of the key missing pieces in Canada? For instance, uh, we still don't have a housing advocate. What are your thoughts? That's exactly right. Um, although uh, I will say that we do have a, a commitment from um, from the government based on the Liberal Party's platform in this past election that we will get a federal housing advocate in the first 100 days. So um, as you can imagine, Sahar and I have a countdown going of when exactly that's going to happen. Um, but um, but that is a critical critical piece of this. And it might be helpful, I suppose, to, to back up a bit and talk a little bit about the National Housing Strategy Act and what we actually get in terms of claiming mechanisms. We get a couple of things. Um, one piece of this, as you said, Michael, is we get a federal housing advocate. And that federal housing advocate is going to have the opportunity to receive systemic claims related to the right to housing directly from rights claimants um, to be able to look into the ways that the right to housing is, is implicated um, and do an investigation. And from that, make recommendations that then go to the minister, presumably now the Minister of Housing, um, Diversity and Inclusion. Um, and then the minister will actually have to respond to those recommendations within 120 days. And that's something that is really quite a bit different about this mechanism and, and frankly different than what we see from, say, ombuds people um, that may not be quite as effective. There is this, this kind of response moment. Um, I imagine later on we'll talk a little bit about the National Housing Council and review panels and what's really exciting in the National Housing Strategy Act. But... I'll leave that maybe to, to Sahar to, to pick up on, but um, just to say about the, the role of the federal housing advocate and this approach that's really proposed in the National Housing Strategy Act, what's exciting and cool and different about it is that beyond, beyond um, you know, an adversarial court process, you know, the, this kind of approach to justice that we've seen where we see government lawyers or the government, you know, really want to throw out their elbows and, and protect themselves from liability. Beyond that, it opens instead this much more um, communication focused way of creating recommendations and developing justice, right? In the human rights world, we call that a dialogic approach. We call that an approach where um, where we'll see, say, the federal housing advocate engaging with rights claimants, engaging with government, and being able to develop recommendations that are based on discourse. Um, and sometimes what that means, you know, as a remedy, we might see, say, from the federal housing advocate, a recommendation, um, not necessarily that, you know, government pays X amount of money to a rights claimant, but instead, we might see recommendations, say, from the advocate that say, the minister must have a conversation with rights claimants. They must focus on this. We must talk about these systemic issues publicly and come to to remedies and 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 ways of of kind of working together. Right. Sometimes the right to housing, what it does through remedies and a dialogic approach, is it opens lines of communication, but it always always places the voices of rights claimants at the very very center and amplifies those voices with a background in international human rights law and what it means to really, really bring justice to the way that we understand housing and homelessness. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness.
through its eight-week paid skills trades training program. Complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. So speaking of the advocate, and you did mention this in your uh, last answer, Michelle, um, so what exactly is the role of the National, National Housing Council, if you can expand on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah I can dig into this. Um, so uh, I think Michelle kind of touched on it, but the National Housing Council is just as important as the housing advocate. I think sometimes people forget that. Um, because they are not only helping to review the NHS, uh, which will bring it up, bring up to date all of our programs and policies and so on, uh, to be in line with the NHSA, but um, they also are the ones who are going to hold these systemic case hearings. So, three people from the National Housing Council will be appointed to hold review, or they will be appointed to a review panel, and then that review panel will hold open hearings where they will hear from rights claimants about the systemic housing issues that they're facing. So if it's rural and remote issues that may come up or the transitions out of care, or out of institutions, um, like these are all systemic housing issues that need to be addressed. And that National Housing Council will directly feed into the review panels who will look into those issues and then uh, issue recommendations to the Minister of Housing. Uh, and then the minister is actually required to respond within 120 days. So there's this clear mechanism of access to justice that's happening here through the National Housing Council. And I actually think it's one of the coolest and uh, most important parts of this legislation because, you know, it kind of takes away the pressure from, you know, typical um, like court cases where like one individual goes and gets one individual remedy and instead it's like, okay, a whole bunch of us are facing this issue and we don't all have to expend all of our time and resources trying to get a remedy, but like together we can, we can bring this case to uh, this review panel and actually have it addressed systemically, which is uh, really, I think, more powerful. So I'm, I'm quite excited to see how these uh, roll out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we talk so much about how homelessness is is not a failure, often not a failure of of an individual, but the system. So I think having a um, you know a a protocol that identifies those systemic issues is really what we've all been trying to get done. So it is exciting to see that in legislation, and really exciting to see where that goes. So uh, the network recently, you folks have been very busy. Uh, you released some papers. Uh, can you tell us? a bit about them and what you hope they achieve. Sure. Um, we love a chance to talk about our research. <laughs> so, um, well, I mean, we're at a really exciting time, right? We have a new government. We now have a housing minister. Um, Sahar mentioned, I think that the, the national housing strategy is going through this stock take. Um, so right now, CMHC is trying to figure out what, what it would mean to make the, the national housing strategy better. Um, and the National Housing Strategy Act, of course, requires that that national housing strategy be consistent with the right to housing. So there's an opportunity there 
there. There's a lot of critical commitments in the Liberal Party's platforms. Um, we're about to get a federal housing advocate. So what a what an exciting time to be working on the right to housing and um, and really to be pushing forward change. Um, what I think we are really focused on um, in the research that that um, Sahar and myself and and our colleagues have developed is we want to be able to advise as they take their next steps. Um, if I can kind of leave listeners with anything today, I really want to leave folks with this idea that the right to housing certainly is a rallying cry. It's an idea that we can convene around. It's something that we can feel um, in our hearts, so to speak, and, and feel a pull towards. But it is also a substantive legal framework, a substantive legal framework that demands accountability, demands justice. And there are certain criteria that we know that the government must fulfill in order to make, say, the national housing strategy really genuinely based in the right to housing, just like any other legal concept, right? We wouldn't say, oh, the the right to equality for women um, and gender diverse persons is just an idea, but not a legal concept. We would never say that, right? The right to housing is just like that in that way, right? It is a legal substantive framework. Um, so the work that Sahar and myself have developed is really taking the national housing strategy and breaking down all the excellent discourse and instruction we've had from international human rights authorities, like the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Housing, like treaty bodies at the United Nations, um, like the Human Rights Council, and really breaking down to figure out what are the pieces of this puzzle that show what the national housing strategy would need to be to be really innovative and exciting, to genuinely end homelessness, to genuinely end core housing need, or, or at least reduce core housing need, um, and what uh, and make some really concrete recommendations, as, as Sahar mentioned earlier, to figure out, you know, what needs to be done in terms of these policies. Um, I'll, I'll also maybe take a minute to plug as well. There's a really excellent paper released um, alongside Sahar and my paper um, by Caitlin Schwan and uh, her amazing team at the Women's National Housing and Homelessness Network um, that surveys women's homelessness and brings a rights-based analysis. And a third paper, as Sahar mentioned, by our really incredible colleague, Bruce Porter, at the Social Rights Advocacy Center, a world-renowned um, scholar and expert on economic, social, and cultural rights, and a um, deeply critical member of the National Right to Housing Network. And he wrote a really great piece on implementation of the right to housing in Canada and really going over some of the history of what Canada has gone through and how the right to housing has really been um, discovered and explored in international spaces and what that means in the Canadian context for this exciting and transformative new mechanisms or the, these these transformative new mechanisms through the National Housing Strategy Act. So, you know, we've positioned these papers as being a really important opportunity to advise um, to advise the federal government and 
I'll maybe just, um, you know, end this by saying as well that the reality is, is that international human rights, the international covenant on economic, social and cultural rights that is directly cited in the National Housing Strategy Act, that is, those are international human rights that don't just apply to the federal government. They apply to agencies like the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation. They apply to uh, local governments. They apply to provincial and territorial governments. So there are ways that we can leverage the right to housing to really inform cooperation and all ways that we create housing law policy and programs. Yeah, and just to uh, add to that point, I, I think it's uh, really important to recognize that the right to housing is interjurisdictional. I think that's one of the key elements of our rights-based analysis um, in our paper that I, I just want to point to because the NHSA has this federal jurisdiction, but human rights apply to all levels of government. And so a lot of our recommendations do also point to the fact that, yes, the federal government needs to take leadership and you know give more power to communities. Um, but it's also on local governments to, you know, take ownership of that because ultimately when it comes to meaningful engagement, it's the local governments and like the municipalities that are closest to the people and they are going to be the best at addressing the needs of individual communities and so on. And so I think that's like uh, one key nugget that I really took away from our research. Fantastic. And listen, I hate you You both put so much work uh, into this. So this next question, I hate to ask, but I have to because you've done great work and you continue to do great work. But what is next uh, for the Right to Housing Canada and for the network? Well, as Michelle mentioned, we are hoping to get that advocate within 100 days. I'm not sure if it's 100 days of the election or 100 days of the minister being appointed, but sometime within the next couple of uh, months, we expect to have a housing advocate appointed as promised in the Liberal Party platform. And then from there, we're expecting a lot of movement, right? Because once the advocate's in place, they can start investigating systemic issues. They can start engaging with uh, rights claimants and people on the ground, and then referring some issues to the review panel, which comes out of the National Housing Council, which has already been appointed. So at that point, we can start with these systemic hearings and systemic cases. And so right now, as a network, we're really working uh, to develop those systemic cases beforehand. So we're running these regional engagements right now with one of our partners, the Center for Equality Rights in Accommodation. And we're, pretty, we're going across the country and meeting with service providers and rights claimants to find out what the major systemic issues are and then offer support in developing submissions for that housing advocate so that once they're appointed, we're all ready to hit the ground running. So that's a really key part of what we're working on right now. And then uh, building on what Michelle said about our papers, uh, the CMHC is doing their stock take of the NHS right now, the National Housing Strategy. And so a lot of our work is um, helping, like, helping all of these bodies to uh, implement a rights-based approach into that national housing strategy. And we're working with the National Housing Council. We're doing some research for them. We're working with the Office of the Federal Housing Advocate and um, have done research for them. And so that's uh, really where we're headed right now. But Michelle, how about you chime in? <laughs> 
Sure, I'll add. Um, I'll add in here, uh, Sahar. Although you made some really excellent points, I'm trying to think of what else is missing here. Um, you know, one one thing that's really exciting about these mechanisms is that even though we're waiting for the federal housing advocate to be appointed, um, we can see that there's still a tremendous amount of energy and stuff that's happening um, on the uh, on this kind of federal stage to create these mechanisms. So. You know, just about last year um, on, on National Housing Day, so on November 22nd, a year ago, we got our National Housing Council um, and we've um, had a great opportunity to, to work with them and collaborate with some, some really incredible members on, on um, the right to housing and, um, and talking and, and interacting with them. And at the same time, too, um, the Office of the Federal Housing Advocate, which is housed at the Canadian Human Rights Commission, has been doing some excellent work. Um, and in fact, the research that we're, we're speaking about today was in fact commissioned by the Office of the Federal Housing Advocate. So we know that these mechanisms are coming because so much groundwork has been created. And there's this tremendous amount of energy, I think, in the sector behind the right to housing. I think, um, you know, at the, the conference, um, the CAH conference earlier this week, um, we saw the, the first keynote speaker make a comment and oh my goodness I'm going to get the quote wrong but I should have written this down but to say um, without the right, human right to housing there is no universal health care and that's so so poignant um, and I think people across the country are feeling that right now right we are in the middle of a housing crisis um, and though we've seen some really important moves from the federal government there is so much work to be done and work to be done to really center this work with the voices of rights claim with those who are facing the housing crisis, um, those in core housing need, those who are experiencing homelessness. And we need mechanisms and ways that demand justice um, because people who, who are benefiting from Canada's housing crisis, um, you know, they have mechanisms. They have wealth that allows them to be able to, to have a voice. And so if we're looking at, you know, addressing neoliberalism, if we're looking at addressing systems that have been perpetuating what is a human rights crisis, our housing crisis, um, then it really means that we need, um, we need, you know, to keep building up that capacity across the country for folks to be able to access these mechanisms. Um, and we also need to see some, some really exciting momentum and we'll be working very closely with the National Housing Council and Office of the Federal Housing Advocate to really be, be encouraging um, a genuine rights-based approach to be applied within these mechanisms. Um, and I'll, I'll maybe um, you know, finish this answer by just saying that um, it is incredible to me, Sahar mentioned we've been doing these um, very cool engagement sessions in regions all across the country over the past year. Uh, we've been working with local partners in regions in the north, um, across the prairies in British Columbia. We have a session coming up in Quebec just next week, um, or maybe two days ago by the time that this airs. <laughs> um, and we also have a session coming up at the beginning of December in the Atlantic provinces. And I will tell you how much 
such incredible energy I hear from rights claimants that we hear about um, people's experiences and the energy that they have and that there might just be a real way for them to have their voices heard and have a response from government that really evens out the unequal power dynamic that is inherently driving the housing crisis. So it is an exciting time and we're going to be working closely developing research, supporting rights claimants, um, advising the government as these mechanisms are developed and make sure that this is something really, really incredible and transformational. Love it. Love transformational. And it is very exciting. Hey, where can people go to learn more about your work? Uh, see it, share it, get it out there. Yeah. Oh, Michelle. Okay, sure. Um, sure. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll do the social media part. You can do the website part. So <laughs> we have Twitter, we have Facebook, we have LinkedIn. Um, you can check us out and, and also just we're a network of 350 other organizations and people. So there are all of our partners who you can check out that are listed on our website. Michelle. Yeah, and you know, and those partners are working on the ground to realize the right to housing. So it's really, really worthwhile to check out uh, also our website at um, housingrights.ca to check out the incredible partners we have across the country um, and some of the the work that we're doing. And, and folks can also sign up for our newsletter there at housingrights.ca. Well, thank you both so much for joining us on the show today and making the time. We know it's a super busy time for you. Um, and yeah, we'll be keeping an eye out, uh, I think, on November 22nd to see where all of this goes. But again, thank you both for, for joining us today. Thank you both for having us. This show is awesome. I feel honored. <laughs> so. uh, Steph, you know, I'll say this from... A blue door perspective of being on the front line the struggle mm -hmm. is real we hear from um, our housing workers they're out there trying to find housing for individuals it's about a thousand dollars in york region just north of toronto right thousand dollars for a room in a house shared kitchen bathroom uh, ontario works social assistance tops out with both food and shelter allowance of about 720 dollars already there's a deficit of 280 dollars so so we need real tools and real help and support uh, if we're going to prevent and end homelessness and, and the right to housing is huge and all these different things that uh, Sahara and Michelle uh, talked about today, uh, it gives me a lot of hope that transformation is happening because we need that in this sector. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I will say I got to uh, join the Right to Housing campaign uh, way back in 2018 and 2019 um, and just watching all the work that the advocates did and I, I played a tiny role for communications and then watch that uh, mobilization of all those people and organizations that were part of that campaign um, evolve into the National Right to Housing Network and watching, uh, you know, Michelle and Sahar and their steering committee um, take that and continue that mobilization, I think is very much why we're still seeing things like during the election housing, you know, be top of mind for so many people, seeing it articulated. And, you know, just, just to say how often we talk about homelessness uh, being a cause of systemic issues, being a failure of policy. What's so exciting about the right to housing is, is watching these mechanisms uh, kind of come to life. And we're really just at the beginning of what I think is going to be really revolutionary work in Canada, uh, in particular, you know, watching it 
you know, at the United, at the level of the United Nations, these treaties, these acts, seeing, uh, I'm just so excited to see what will happen here in Canada as we watch it uh, continue to grow and, and being led by the National Right to Housing Network is, yeah, it's just super exciting. Super exciting and bringing lots of hope. Once again, we've got fantastic guests on the way home. Uh, tune in, share, share this widely. People need to know, and we will see you next time. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.